Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And this is the Standing With Stones Antiquarian Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who've supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash standing with stones. So, welcome to Standing With Stones monthly podcast number 12. Yes, we're a year old. Yes, this actually marks the end of our first year as a podcast. Well, didn't we do well? Didn't we? Yeah. So that's a year already, um, but so much still to do. So actually, we've decided to move into our second year, which doesn't officially begin till um, was it April the third? That was the date of our very first I podcast. Yeah, yeah. But we've decided to move on by bringing you a series where we look at specific regions each month, telling you about some unique sites or sites that are just particularly good places to visit. We're going to start off with. Dartmoor, because it's a place we know and love so very well. Uh, so, yeah, this it's month's Dartmoor, and then we'll be traipsing off around the country as the months go on. Yeah. Yeah. Funny it's Dartmoor, isn't it? Because that's where the whole Standing with Stones thing kicked off in the first place. Golly. Anyway, boundaries. Have we got any to push back this month? We do. Yes, we do. Um, actually, this comes from new research by the University of Copenhagen and the University College London. And the findings come from excavations in what is now northeast Jordan. And they've uncovered some interesting shifts in our relationship with dogs. Oh, right. Dogs. Very good. Very interesting. <laughs> well, it's reasonably well known that humans domesticated dogs around 14,000 years ago. Uh, Do you know, I didn't. I really didn't know that. You uh, say it's reasonably well known that humans domesticated dogs around fourteen thousand years ago, but I, I really didn't know. Okay, that. interesting. So that's well, a, a surprise over here. Well, there there are various disparate bits of evidence to show that we've, at the very least, been putting up with each other for much longer than than that. Well, even in cave dwellings going back thirty thousand years, you know, there are. Um, you know, in mud and what have you, there are um, there are paw prints next to footprints, and, and yeah. often with children as well. And we know that they were walking side by side. Um, so, um, uh, but the, this um, the interesting thing here: the, the excavation is at a site called um, Shubaika. Uh, I think that's the right pronunciation, uh, which dates back eleven and a half thousand years yeah and uh, they're suggesting the earliest evidence yet for the use of dogs in hunting oh so right. okay. yeah a bit of a game changer so uh, previously it's generally been thought that maybe you know we had dogs around the places guard dogs possibly pets but um but excavations at the site have turned up large amounts of small prey bones particularly hares and a large percentage of these bones have clearly passed through a digestive tract. Now, the thing is that they're way too big to be swallowed by humans, but it would be easy pickings for any dog. Right. Okay. Uh, even even hair bones, too big for humans to... Uh, but I, I, I get it, you know. Uh, yes, uh, hands up. Uh, I have a dog. And you would have absolutely bones of any size, really. Eventually, even though he's a little fella, <laughs> he'll work his way through them. So what makes them think this particularly relates to hunting and not just, you know, opportunist dogs nicking scraps of food off the table? Yeah, yeah. well, it's a combination of things, but notably it's a sudden shift in the number of small prey. So in other sites which were um, temporary or seasonal settlements, the evidence implies that the dogs came and scavenged when people weren't around. But right. the thing is that at Shubaika, they, they know that the site was occupied all year round, and it shows that the dogs were present at the site 
uh, all the time at the same time as people oh, right. and in amongst the people rather than on the outskirts of the settlement. Fascinating. I wonder what sort of dogs. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're certainly not going to be small dogs because we hadn't bred yeah. small dogs by then. So it's, you know, that transition between wolf and... and uh, Mesolithic Pekingese. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, the, the researchers think that the, the evidence for dogs being concurrent with a massive increase in the numbers of small prey is very unlikely to be coincidental. They reckon it... Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I get it now. So they reckon it's more likely that the increase in numbers of hares in the diet, for example, was was because of the dogs. Oh, right. Well, (laughs) so much for progress. Um, (laughs) My dog, bless him, won't even catch a frisbee. Actually, no, actually, to be fair, he's pretty good with a tennis ball, has to be said. Yeah, okay, well, that's uh, yeah. that's, uh, yeah, that's on yeah. the way to hair something, isn't it? Um, yes, but that's another story, really. It doesn't, um, <laughs> doesn't really help push back any boundaries. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. On to the news, then. What's first up this month, Michael? News for the world at large, but perhaps not for those in the know. Their articles began popping up recently about a large number of mysterious stone structures being found in the Western Sahara. Um, well, certainly news to me. And me. But um, it turns out that this is from a book published by Oxbow called The Archaeology of Western Sahara, A Synthesis of Fieldwork 2002 to 2009. Mm. So these structures have been known about for years, but for some reason until now, no one seems to have been inspired to tell the public. <laughs> yeah, which is odd because some of them are really unusual. Yeah, no, it's bizarre. It's almost as if a, some rich Victorian explorer wanted to make a hotchpotch folly, incorporating incorporating loads of different styles of megalith. Right? I mean, there's one. There's one particularly large arrangement that's what 630 meters in length, which includes wow. you know, straight lines, stone circles, raised platforms, rock piles. Um, but there are tumuli and dolmens as well. There's a real mixture. Wow. So we're talking we're talking about stuff in the region of the oasis town of Tiferiti. I presume that's how you pronounce it. Uh-huh. Um, But just to add to the site's very enigmatic quality, very little excavation has been done, so hardly any datable artefacts have been found. But they did find some human remains in a couple of tumuli, which date back not very far at all, only about uh, 1,500 years. Now, what would be really interesting here is if and when they do get round to excavating the dolmens, any remains they can date are going to be significant for two principal reasons. Firstly, if the dates are as old as we would normally expect for dolmens, it would mean that the site was in use for an enormous length of time. But secondly, if the remains are roughly as recent as those in the tumuli, it would mean that we've found a settlement where they were using building techniques that had fallen into disuse everywhere else. So it's a win-win. Really. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Whichever way it breaks, yeah. But anyway, it, it, it's altogether. It's a it's a very it's a fascinating piece. Fantastic. Of no, it really is. And I'll segue into your desert piece with something that's how dare you. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> this is probably actually as depressing as it is exciting, and. Clearly, oh, we've never done a depressing piece before, you know, Rupert. <laughs> no, it's not the grouchy hat; it's the depressing hat. Yeah, clearly, your Sahara settlement dates back to a time when weather conditions were somewhat different in the region. Uh, well, global warming is having some effects we hadn't really considered before, and that is melting permafrosts. Uh, that, as frosts go, aren't so perma anymore. Uh, Now, on the exciting side, the melting ice is exposing all manner of artefacts, and a team of archaeologists in Norway have set up a program called Secrets of the Ice, and the team have found artefacts ranging from clothing to arrows. Wow. uh, Yeah, the most evocative for me are there's a 3,400-year-old shoe and 
of the 70 arrows that they've recovered so far, one of them is 6,000 years old. Incredible. Well, I mean, that that bit all sounds good. So um, onward, give us the depressing side of this. Yes, well, like. it's, it's down to the increasing speed of the melting ice. Of course. Firstly, as artefacts are uncovered, contact with the air along with being wet rather than frozen, they begin to deteriorate very quickly. So without vast resources, countless artefacts could be lost forever before we even know of their existence. Now, secondly, it's not just the surface ice that is being lost. Glacial melting and the increasing loss of sea ice is exposing the coastlines in places that have been protected by ice for millennia. So any settlements and artefacts exposed near the shores will be battered to hell as soon as they're exposed. Yeah. I mean, actually, the impact of climate change is something we don't often consider in these contexts. Events like flooding and mudslides that we see happening with increasing regularity must be taking their toll on any local archaeology. Well, thank goodness there are teams around the world who are working to save our forgotten history before it's lost forever. Yeah, it's very true. The, the, the team are hoping to find another Ertzi. Um, you know, um, mummies in the ice. You know, you'd, you'd think yeah. in that vast area there must be some preserved bodies. But, um, but there you go. <laughs> Have you got something a little yeah. more cheerful? <laughs> well, actually, I mean, before it's an interesting point, you know, before we move on, it's the sheer serendipity when we talk about Ertzi, that you know, the sheer serendipity of his discovery yeah. and his rescue, if you call it that, before his remains deteriorated beyond the point when, uh, you know, the information contained in them could be analyzed. And then, of course, all that money, all those resources thrown at Ertzi after that event, you know, it's yeah. a very particular thing. And yet, new stuff being exposed. You've got to have people in the right place at the right time yeah. in order to take advantage uh, before they deteriorate, as you as you rightfully pointed out. So it is a resources thing. It is. Well, it, it, you know, it's a fantastic project that they've, uh, they've got going, the Secrets of the Ice team. Yeah. And uh, there's going to be, you know, we'll put the links um, on the website, but definitely worth having a look at, um, at what these guys are doing out in the field. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. I mean, it does seem, sound a little macabre to be hoping to find corpses. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, it's just fantastic being able to learn more of how our ancestors lived, mm. particularly to see what they were wearing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yes, I do have something more cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray. This is this discovery in the western coastal region of India, in Kolil, which is in Udupi district. Some petroglyphs have been discovered dating back around 12,000 years, which makes them the oldest known rock art in the region. Wow. The carvings show humans with a variety of animals, and one carving in particular shows a figure clearly hunting an animal. Oh, now that's nice. I think I mean, things become so much more tangible, don't they, when it's an illustration of something happening rather than just straight figures. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, something that we can relate to rather than some obscure religious practice or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Hunting, yeah, still done. Anyway, these are pretty big too, these carvings. Some of the human figures look uh, not too far off life-size. Wow. And they're, they're carved into the ground rock. It's a 20-acre site. Team think there'll be more to find. Uh, There are at least 10 human forms, including one female figure with cut marks on her head and stomach. Oh, interesting. And they they found some stone tools as well. So it's very much a work in in progress. But interestingly, it was was locals who found the carvings and contacted Professor Murugeshi Turukaveri at the Department of Ancient History and Archaeology at MSRS College Shiva. It's really interesting to see them in context and get a proper idea of scale. So, as usual, all the necessary links and uh, images or links to images will be on the website. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do love it when we bounce around all over the world. <laughs> 
this image came up into my mind as I was hopping around the world on uh, on on um, what space hoppers? <laughs> space hoppers. <laughs> what do you like? Michael and Rupert space hop around the world. Yeah, it's a film that's got to be made. <laughs> Where are we going to hop to next? We're go- we're going to hop to Darwin. So, bouncing all the way to Dartmoor. Bouncing all the way to Dartmoor. 365 square miles of bliss. How do you think, how do you think it is that, uh, to, to kick off, you know, talking about particular sites in this way, that we happen to have chosen Dartmoor? It's where everything kicked off for us, isn't it, really? You'd already been uh, taking people round Dartmoor, hadn't you, before we met up and started standing with Stone? Yeah, but it, it was more. Um, I mean, for a very, very long time, I've been um, I've been going down to Devon a lot for oh over forty years, and wow. um, and so Dartmoor was just one of those places that I explored. Over the years, just you know, yeah. sometimes there's nothing better than putting your backpack on and just disappearing. Um, and the archaeology is just wonderful, absolutely yeah. wonderful. It, it's an irony, isn't it? That uh, and when we mentioned this in uh, in Standing with Stones, that uh, that we have this vast area where uh, it, it's undestroyed by farming because of all the deforestation caused by our ancestors all those thousands of years ago. So, yeah. you know, it was the, the the very act of our ancestors being unenvironmentally friendly that has protected all the archaeology. It's, yeah. <laughs> it is an irony. And it's fair to say, I think, um, that because it is so extraordinary that anybody going there, spending some time, people do tend to fall in love with it and its archaeology and the monuments yes. that across it, yeah. So we, uh, but th- this kicked off the whole Standing with Stones thing. W- the first little film we made was a... Uh, yes, the pilot that we did it, back in... That was what I was going to ask you. When was it? Which year? Yeah. I mean, I'm a, we um, are going back a bit. But it was a pilot because in, in those days, we were thinking that the best way to do this would be to get uh, a proper uh, broadcaster to make it. Yeah. To, um, to make it in concert with, so we made the pilot not for public consumption, but f- as a um, a showcase for what uh, we could do, and particularly yeah. you know how wonderful Mr. Soskin is in front of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we yeah we did a chunk of stuff around Ditsworthy Warren, didn't we? Uh, Scorrel, yeah, Yellowmead, Yellowmead, indeed. Yeah, yes. I'll uh, dig it up and, and look at it. I'll put it, if I find it, maybe I can put it in the show notes, the, the wow. original pilot, yeah? That'll be embarrassing. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully not. <clears throat> Tell the nice people, what's your, what's your favourite site? Where do you want to kick off? Oh, do you know what? I, I, I think probably the place to kick off has got to be Merryvale. Yeah. Really, I think so because it's it's one of those things. When I was thinking about, you know, how can we best uh, tell people about places to go on Dartmoor, and I thought that, well, you've got some people who who either don't want to or maybe they can't walk great distances, so they want to be able to visit sites that aren't far from the road. Yeah, but equally, places that have got some substance to it, you know, not just a random hut circle somewhere, but um, you know, so if you want a site that has just got a bit of everything, but the road runs through it, <laughs> Merry Merryvale is the very place. Yeah, um, it's it's oh, just I love that place. I just love that place because it's uh, you can just let your mind go free. You know, you you look at the the stone rows and the stone circles and the hut circles, so you know that people were living there. Yeah. Um, as you know, a proper settlement, but with all the other unexplainable aspects of it as well. You know, what was that stone circle for? Because it's yeah. it's not an enormous stone circle, but it's big enough to have been something. You know, a communal thing. Uh, it's I don't know. I love it. 
And, and it's um, close to the road, but not so near the road that the road disturbs it that much as well. So you Very can, true. I mean, yeah. there's there's a number of hut circles that are bang by the side of the road. Yeah. But, um, but you know, once you've parked the car and wandered off, you can go as far from the road as you like, can't you? Yeah. You don't hear the traffic. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not that there's that much traffic down there anyway. I think the, the wonderful thing about uh, about the the Merivale stone rows plural is that there are more than one. There's the two mm. parallel with each other within spitting distance, side by side. Yeah. You think? Yeah. Well, if they got the one, why did they make another, or did they make them at the same time? Why has one got this little kissed right in the middle of it? Yeah. Um, a burial kiss, you know, which is relatively elaborate. and uh, Yes, it's very true. The fact that there are two parallel mm. uh, rows is, is really intriguing because, uh, you know, they're, they're both still pretty much intact. So it wasn't that they built a new one because the old one had fallen to bits. So what mm. was that about? And um, for people going there, I think it's fair to say, don't include the little stream that's running between them uh, in mm. your thoughts. Because that's that's a later kind of addition. I do believe that's uh, yeah, I think so. Wouldn't have been there when the stone when the stone rows were, were put up. Actually, of mm. course, it was one of the earlier uh, what we call uh, stonescapes that I went out and uh, and recorded. Yes, you did. Lovely piece of film it so was too. I'll, I'll I'll put that up as well. It's just a very short portrait using nice camera mm. and drone drone footage actually we have talked about dogs i have to mention our dog at this point he's a, a parsons terrier called Leica, and he absolutely hates drones <laughs> i've nearly lost the drone to that dog on a number of occasions but anyway moving on moving on moving on <laughs> Well, I think, do you know what, talking about Merivale and its um, proximity to the road, yeah. uh, one of the other sites that I think is just lovely because it's so tucked away and you just wouldn't know it was there unless you were looking for it is Spinster's Rock. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is that gorgeous dolmen that is sitting in... You can't even call it a field, can you? It's a garden um, that's behind a hedge, through a gate, and you would drive up that road and have no idea that it was there if you didn't see the little sign. Yeah. And uh, that's definitely a site worth a visit. It's, you know, it is a splendid dolmen. Yeah. Uh, when we tried to film there, there was a mare and her foal in the fields. That's remember. true. That's true. Yes. There were, yeah. There is footage and photographs of us trying to work with animals in that field. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. We, we do like working with animals, don't we? Hey-ho. Yay. Low expectations. as rock. Almost forgotten about that. Yay. <laughs> I should say probably up front, really, that we will, um, we will put the grid references on the website as well for these uh, uh, for these sites, he said, making a rod for his own bank. But um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, because there are, there are so so many sites to see on Dartmoor. So the fact that we're cherry picking some of these, yeah, yeah Merivale is by far not the only st stone rows on Dartmoor. How many? Indeed, this is true. Over sixty. Oh my god! You're kidding me. I've no, forgotten. no, no. Of course, it's no. a film, isn't it? Yes, I've forgotten. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in fact, oh, now I'm having a senior moment. What is the name of the, it's on the, uh, it's on the southern side of Dartmoor, the longest, I'm pretty sure it's the longest stone row in the world. And it goes across, it's called the Urm Plains. It's like something out of Game of Thrones. Um, Spelt but it's E-R-M-E, is that right? E-R-M-E, yeah. Ah. Um, planes. I remembered. And uh, I can't remember how long it is, but it's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's well over a mile long. Um, and the thing that's so evocative about any of the stone rows, really, but particularly ones like this, the really long ones, is that you can imagine, you know, going back to a period when Dartmoor was heavily forested. Yeah. Probably. And uh, and so it's quite likely that these really long stone rows were just, the, you know, a, 
direction markers uh, going through the forest to take you from point A to point B. Yeah. Uh, it's so yeah, I find that really evocative when you you find yourself out in the middle of the moors, but you follow a stone row and you know that you're just following a route that was established many thousands of years ago. As we speak, I've gone to the megalithic portal. And uh, do you want a, a couple of stats? Go on. There are a thousand remaining stones in the um, plain stone row. Fantastic. Um, they're not very big. You know, no. you, have, you have to watch out for them. It's 3,320 metres long. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That is a long, long row. So, yeah, if you're going to make the comparison with... Merivale, where that, that's clearly, uh, you know, short stone rows. Well, they're not that short, but, but relatively speaking, it's more like yeah. a processionary pathway, um, if it's not too uh, outrageous to call it that. I think that's fair. But, you know, the stones in those stone rows are sort of varying in, you know, waist height to chest height, that sort of uh, size. But going across the Urm Plains, many of them are, uh, they're just stones in the ground. You know, they were never meant to be impressive uh, sort of monolithic things. They were there to, to guide the way through the, uh, through the forest. That's my interpretation anyway, certainly to guide the way well, across actually, the plains. Well, may, maybe now would be a, a good time to put a bit of context into this whole, um, you know, the... the <laughs> the Dartmoor complex, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what the ecology uh, and how the ecology uh, of Dartmoor has changed over the years, and um, what and the the relationship of what we're seeing now to what was in existence um, five thousand years ago or so. What we do know is that if you go back into the Mesolithic. So certainly, let's say 10,000 years ago, that the moor was completely forested and okay. that uh, people started cutting the trees down. I mean, initially, it's thought, initially, it's thought that uh, the, the clearings were made to, uh, to make hunting easier um, because you could hide behind the trees and the animals are chomping away on the grass in the clearing and they're just easy pickings. Um, and then, you know, moving uh, moving on through time, as you know, particularly into the Bronze Age, when uh, when people started establishing territories and and farming, that um, exactly the same as we are still doing now. You know, we carry on deforesting, uh, getting rid of the trees to uh, to open up territory. Uh, for ourselves you know it's it's yeah. the biggest problem we face today isn't it well or one of the the mm. amount of land that we're tearing down for either beef farming or uh, or soya and palm oil plantations you know that kind of thing so we you know we've never stopped doing it you've left a bit of an elephant in the room there because we leapt there from the mesolithic from the time when it was forested and, and kind of bypassed the uh, Neolithic and went straight to what was going on in the Bronze Age. I was just really making the extremes, really, that we went from yeah. uh, we went from deep forest to uh, you know to you know through Neolithic and into Bronze Age, yeah. where we were just yeah. getting rid of more and more and more, and uh, and so that opens the land up to uh, uh, to erosion in a way. That, you know, we we're, 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 I think we're pretty much all familiar with the way that happens. That because we got rid of all the trees, we, our ancestors, yeah. because they got rid of all the trees, there was no root uh, to hold on to topsoil, which means it just all weathered away. So it's now, it, it's not really drastically good grazing anymore. Mm. You know, so the, the, all the archaeology now is protected by the fact that, um, that we made it rubbish for farming. Yeah, yeah. So without without getting ourselves in too deep water, uh, uh, because you know we we don't because it's not there is not that much that is known about the dating of the monuments mm. on Dartmoor. There are some dates, but there's mm, doesn't seem to be enough to you know create a cohesive picture of 
of its um, history and development no. through early Neolithic through to the, the, the Bronze Age. So are there any pointers, though, as to what period we can really compress th this into? Or is compression the wrong thing to think about because it was occupied um, in, you know, in, and in use until into the Bronze Age, until the last monuments were built for a very, mm. very long time indeed? Yes, I mean, it, it, it's very difficult to to generalize it really no maybe that's the other way around maybe it's very easy to, uh, to generalize it that yeah. we yeah. know um from a typology point of view you know when you look at some of the um uh, some of the circles and standing stones that some of them must be neolithic and some of them must be bronze age um there are places like uh there's a wonderful site called grim's pound that um, it's this enormous circular wall and inside the wall so it was basically it was a pound anything that's called a pound was for keeping hold of livestock and within those walls there are hut circles where people lived with their animals back then now grim's pound is it's accepted that it is a bronze age site and or um, even iron age i mean aren't the dates iron age for that more um and uh certainly the dates for round pound which is oh i beg your pardon um, yeah uh, now round pound that's actually round pound is one of my favorite sites the dates um the dates from <clears> it uh are iron age but it's probably very fair to say that there was something on that site for a lot longer they're just the dates that have been established from it but you know it, it's it's the age-old problem with dating isn't it that uh, that you can only go with, uh, with with what you've actually found and unless they're going to take stones yeah. up to sample what is underneath which they haven't um you know we don't really know quite how far back these places yeah. go. I didn't want to do a deep dive on the dating of, <laughs> of Dartmoor because I think it's a it's a, something that's under constant debate. But suffice it to say that some fairly recent radiocarbon dates have come up with dates as early as um, uh, mid mid fourth millennium, you know. which is old. Which old. is old, you know, three thousand five hundred BC. But they're kind of uh, debated, you know, the, the debates around the proper context for them, etc. Yeah, do you remember it. offhand where those dates are from? Which site that relates relates um, to? Cut Cut Hill Stone Row, which is a very okay. short row of nine stones, and also I believe from the re fairly relatively recently discovered stone circle. Uh, which the name of which escapes me from the t for the time oh, being. Are you talking about? Um, you're talking about Sitterford, aren't you? I'm talking about Sitterford, yes. Yeah. Uh, which um, the stones uh, have been. Uh, I don't. I don't know if anybody's bothered to re-erect them, but they were flat uh, yeah. on the ground. So you know, the, the peat underneath them uh, possibly uh, retained dates from when they were fallen. Yeah. Um, they were quite early as well. So. The, the the jury's out. The jury's out. But there are indications it could be mm. the activities could be earlier than were previously thought. Could be, mm. and I don't think we can say more than about that, really, um, Rupert. No, yeah. well, do you know what? I I don't think it matters to be honest. I think that if you're if you're <laughs> um, if you're wanting to go, I mean, from the point of view of going out and enjoying the archaeology. Oh sure. But, oh um, yeah, yeah. But you so, know, if you know that you're talking about sites that are broadly Bronze Age and Neolithic, then that's evocative enough in itself. And it's interesting, actually, you bringing up Cut Hill and, uh, and Sitterford because they're, they're, those are two places, they're very close to each other, right. and they are to the north of Post Bridge. Now, Post Bridge, which is just a little, I don't even know if it's a village, is it? I don't think it's a town. Um, but it, it's just, it's a place, it's not far from Merivale. The thing about Postbridge, there is parking there. And if you just plonk yourself there, you can go in any direction and find stuff that is worth looking at. Uh, so uh, f if you go south from Postbridge, then one of my favourite 
places that nobody talks about it and i don't know why there's a place called craps ring now it's uh you have to park in postbridge and do you know what i'm surprised nobody talks about craps ring <laughs> it's spelled with a k <laughs> spelled with a k <laughs> guys at parties. <laughs> but uh, if you um if you walk south and it's not it's not far. It's probably, and I'm, rem- I'm off the top of my head, maybe half a mile uh, from the roads. Just walking south across the moor, uh, you get to. It's a. It's quite a big stone circle, actually. And the thing is that Craps Ring is marked on the map, and uh, so you go to that, and then just start looking around and see what else there is. And the thing is that there's a whole ton of stuff that's not marked on the map properly. It's all part of the Craps Ring settlement, but it's extensive. And there's some impressive dolmens and standing stones and all sorts around there. So, I, I, you know, I do recommend that. I found it entirely by chance. You know, this is, you know, years ago that I, I, I saw Craps Ring on the map, thought I'll go and have a look at that. And I couldn't believe what else was there that you know, nobody just, yeah. nobody mentions it. Brilliant. Uh, my knowledge of of um, Dartmoor pales into insignificance. Besides uh, Rupert's, or quite a lot of other people's. Besides, <laughs> um, now I mention it, but you know, one of my favourite things, and I think a recommended um, ad- adventure if you want to get a bit further off road, but not stretch the leg muscles quite so much, <laughs> is um, one route to uh, Scorrel Stone Circle. Oh. Yes, because you you there's a little car parking place, and you can mm. say more about where that is because I can't remember exactly. We mentioned Round Pound, yes, uh, the pound <clears throat> with uh, Iron Age dating. But where's the where's the, where's the little town in the middle of Dartmoor that, that that's uh, you approach that through? Oh, Batworthy is the farm. So if you go past Round Pound, we will put these date uh, these details on. Uh, on the website, but if you go past Round Pound, you get to Batworthy Farm, and that's where oh, yeah. you can park. And what's great about it, there's a lovely walk up beside a stream, just running down a little little um, valley there. And the, if you get to the top there, and you take a slight left-hand deviation, you get to shovel down stone rows. Yes, which is nice because they're relatively unvisited. Mm. You can you can be fairly sure of getting up there and getting lovely views up there on your own. But if you turn um, right and take a, a walk along the stone road, uh, the, the the stone wall to your, which will be on your right and over a clapper bridge, you get to Scorrel Stone Circle. Yeah, so it's a nice little thing that takes in two important elements of. Uh, of Dartmoor, you know, with with great views and not too much of a strenuous walk as well involved. It, it really is a lovely part of the moor, actually. And you're you're right, the shovel down that people don't talk about that very much either. And the thing is that yeah. if you uh, if you stray off the path, because one of the things that we're all very <laughs> very bad at is that you know we'll look at the map and we'll say, okay, we're going to go to in this instance, so we're going to walk to Scorrel, but if you stray off the path to your left, if you're, uh, you know, if the stone wall of Batworthy Farm is on your right and you're walking towards Scorrel, well, the field just spreading off to your left is littered with stones. And a lot of those, uh, you know, they're just the remains of, you know, stones that have been split for dry stone walling, what have you. But in amongst those stones are very clearly remains of things that are thousands of years old and just that's where they lie it's amazing so that's one place talk to us of um yellow mead rupert (sighs) well if you (laughs) um (laughs) it's uh one of my favorite circular walks to do Uh, and if you head to gutter tour and at the foot of Gutter Tour, there is a bit of parking. So you can leave your car there. And then if you uh, you walk from there, you're walking east, really, pretty much east, and you get to the Drizzlecombe Stone Rose. Now, if you like a good walk, a good, you know, a good day out walk, then you can go past the Drizzlecombe Stone Rose, 
keep walking on up the moor and you'll get to a lovely site that's called Giant's Grave. Yes. And do you know what? I'll just uh, I'll just deviate for a moment. Giant's Please Grave is, uh, is interesting as a name because if you go to any museum and ask if you can have a look at their maps, their old maps, and if you go to maps that are, say, 200 years old, if you can, and you'll find that there are giant's graves everywhere because they didn't know what to call them. It looked like it was a grave for somebody who must have been enormously huge. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in actual fact, you look at an Ordnance Survey map now, and you'll see a couple of places called Giant's Grave here and there. You go to maps a couple of hundred years old, and they're just everywhere. Wow. So, yeah. uh, uh, you know, yeah. it kind of gives you a different perspective on the name. But yeah. uh, but if, you, if you've, you've got as far as Giant's Grave, and if you then turn north and start uh heading back west so do a big loop round and um you have to be careful to fall into not to fall into that little kist you do you do yeah there's uh there's just so much stuff buried in the grass and um but ultimately you will you will come back to yellowmead which is uh Essentially, it's to the north of where you've parked, so you know you can do a big loop back to it. Now, Yellowmead is this quadruple stone circle that you know we joked about it uh, when we were filming yeah. uh, that it, it looks like a target, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it looks like you know the ne- nearest sphere to the middle winds. Um, but in actual fact, it was only really when we were filming up in come on help me out michael what's the name of the place near kilmartin um oh bally ballyminock no um hold on a second oh templewood well done templewood yeah you can cut that out um (laughs) oh no it makes me sound good yes (laughs) keep it in um (laughs) when we were filming up at templewood that there is a quadruple stone circle. Is it quadruple? It's either triple or quadruple, yeah. uh, where the rings are then backfilled with cobbles. Uh, yeah. So it's basically making, I don't know, maybe it was a, a a floor for a cairn or what have you. But you can see uh, if you apply that um, that image to Yellowmead, you can see that it was... Um, an enormous can at some point. Yeah. Um, but it, it's wonderful to see because, you know, a quadruple stone circle is not something you see very often. Um, mm. In fact, I can't think of another one that I've seen anywhere quite like that. Just be warned, though, my experience, uh, I don't know if this is a permanent feature of Yellow Mead, depending on which way you're uh, going back to the car park, but you might need very good walking waterproof walking walking boots <laughs> sticks and or wellington boots because it does get a bit um swampy out there doesn't it do you, do you know what i i have been there at various times of year and i've been there i don't know how many times quite a few and it has never been dry i've always no. got quite muddy um, so yeah. yeah, it was probably a good idea to point that out. So, <laughs> if you don't like that, don't go there. <laughs> so onward, yeah. it's not the most impressive stone circle by any means, hmm. but you know what? One place that really sticks in my mind, and that's Little Froggy Mead. Oh, that is a delightful place, isn't it? Yeah. Well, actually. I'm not so sure anymore because do you know what? They've cut back the trees right back. So you know what I mean? That, uh, um, that, uh, little enclosed space sort yes. of meadow area surrounded by the trees has become much more open than my what? memory. It's very it. interesting that you say that because, yeah. um, uh, well, if any of you have got, uh, have got, our book, Standing With Stones, the, the photographs in there, because we, we included that. Uh, did we include it in the film? 
I've yes. certainly in the book. I don't know if it was mentioned specifically, but there's certainly, I think, footage from Froggy. Right. Um, but it was it was very much enclosed within that little mm. bit of woodland. But I have, amongst uh, my old books, I've got a photograph taken from the 1930s. Oh, yeah. Where it's just completely barren moorland. There are no trees oh. there at all. Of course, of course. Um, yeah. So interesting that it's uh, it's been taken back to how it was a century ago. Yeah, I mean, because there were posts on another uh, group on Facebook bemoaning the fact, you know, that the wood had been cut down. They were saying, well, you know, it's the way it goes. It's uh, forestry commission land, and it, it was always eventually going to yeah. be... Yeah, uh, well, do you know, I, I think it, it's, it's interesting, I think, when you look at places like... Because I do agree with you, Froggy Mead is just delightful. Mm. To get to Froggy Mead, you uh, you're near the Fernworthy Reservoir, and if you yeah. if you look on the maps, the amount of stuff that is dotted around, you know, obviously the settlements thousands of years ago, which you know people were living all over the moor. This was buzzing absolutely buzzing and there is so much stuff to be seen around there and if you take away that plantation so obviously they, they have taken away a chunk of that but um but a lot of those plantations were they were wartime stuff that they they planted because they needed wood um okay and so a lot of those plantations were uh, were put in in the uh, 30s and 40s but if you, uh, in your mind's eye, take those uh, plantations away to when it was more of a barren moor um, 100 years ago, you can see how uh, a circle, because, you know, it's not a small circle, Froggy Mead. It's cute, though. Yeah. Not forgetting. It's not just a stone circle, but it's got this little stone road yeah. leading off, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, off it. Yeah, it's, what used to be into the woods, but... Uh, no Not more. Quite so much but anymore, the interesting yeah. thing there is that if you take the plantation away, then you're actually, oh, half a mile maybe um, from, uh, in fact, not even that, quarter of a mile from uh, Grey Weathers, which is just pretty much to the west of yeah. Um, yeah. of Fernworthy. And Grey Weathers, oh, you know, everybody's got to go to Grey Weathers, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. Well, this is one of the great things. You, you, uh, there's a car park where you can park if you're going to uh, mm. Froggy Mead, and you go up. You can walk up the the Forestry Commission Road, mm. and it's not long before um, it, 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 there's a little off to the right in which Froggy Mead resides, mm. and then you can carry on. Sort of, oh, you crest the hill on that road, and and it opens up, and down in the Farish distance. I think it's a bit further than a quarter of a mile, but um, you yeah, will see cool. if you're lucky. Um, and it's not too misty. Grey weathers, um, which is a remarkable sight, yeah, because it's a, a twin stone circle or twin yeah. stone circles, and we have no idea what that was about. <laughs> Explain that. It's just so weird, isn't it? All all you can say yeah. is that one of the circles is ever so slightly smaller than the other but to look at yeah. them you wouldn't know that um yeah. it's yeah what is that about it's just odd so it definitely is in the film actually you know what having mentioned um post bridge basically go north from post bridge you will get to gray weathers um, oh okay it's uh, and that walk if you want to do that uh, there's various beehive huts along the way and mm. uh, things, you know, again, there's just so much stuff going across the moor. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. And we could go on and on because we've really, we really although we've done really some good. of the best, we have barely scratched the surface of the shoe. Do you know what? There is one site that I'd like to mention, yeah. though. And go for that it. is because it really is one of my absolute favourites and it's a stone row going down the hill. It's called Asikum. Oh, yeah. And the thing about Asikum is uh, for no good reason, it's just it's just utterly magical for me. Um, a stone row going to a small circle at the bottom, 
and it's deep in plantation now. Obviously, wouldn't have been uh, a long time ago. But the thing is that even a long time ago, if it was barren landscape, so no trees, it's still going down into a valley. So it still feels very enclosed and mm. i just love the place love the place it is a bit of a walk though it's um probably i don't know it's half a mile from the road maybe something like that we'll include the references grid references i think though that we should uh, stop there and hope that we've uh, conveyed our enthusiasm for the place and inspired uh, some visits and uh, reaffirmed some stuff for people that already know Dartmoor. Mm. Do you know what, though, Rupert? I mean, you know, we're sort of in, in the market for um, doing tours and, and, and taking people round and yeah. uh, doing talks and, and that kind of thing. It would be interesting to know if, if folk would be up for joining us at, um, at some point to yeah, one like a trip, uh, uh, a, uh, a trip. Uh, on Dartmoor, a little holiday. That's something that we could yeah, yeah. certainly do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you think that would be a good idea, give us um, give us a nudge. Um, yeah. Send us an email. Or, yes, or, do uh, that. Comment on on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. Yeah, we'd be uh, absolutely delighted to hear from you. Good local beers as well. Oh yes. <laughs> anyway, I think that's Dartmoor for the time being. That's Dartmoor for the time being. Yeah. Okay. I'm wooden outward. <laughs> Let's do that thing. All right. And that brings us to question time. So, anything uh, come up this month, Rupert? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I picked this one out because of its relevance for maintaining a dose of healthy scepticism. <laughs> and Andrew Parsons from Exeter asks, brace yourself, am I missing something? <laughs> there have been a number of supposed news items about the Stonehenge bluestones. Mike Parker Pearson is quoted as saying that we're a step closer to finding out why the stones were brought so far and that every other site in Europe is constructed with stones from no more than 10 miles away. Is this true? And if it is true, how do we know? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Where to begin? Mm. Um, well, one thing to note is, uh, without getting into too much trouble, if you, if you note press releases down the years, uh, Mike Parker Pearson is always being quoted as saying, we're a step closer to finding <laughs> out what's <laughs> <laughs> yes we're always a step closer to finding out something and it's just around the corner <laughs> um that's uh yes mr parker pearson's modus operandi so you just have to uh, have to have to deal with that um so I, like i said i don't know which quite uh which question to answer first is andrew asking if we're actually really a step closer to understanding why the blue stones were bought so far um if so the answer is no. <laughs> or is Andrew asking if it's true that no other site uses stones from more than 10 miles away? Answer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, caution where it's due. I have to wonder um, if really that's an accurate quote. But even if it is, I can't see that anything will ever really tell us why the stones were brought so far. No. Maybe one day we'll know for certain how they were transported. But personally, uh, I think I think why why is unknowable. Unless they find Duncan's notes. Yes. Aha. <laughs> yes. Unless we can find Duncan's notes. <laughs> I think we should. I, th I think we should have a link to the Duncan theory on the page notes. We will. If you don't know what we're talking yeah. about, I'm not going to give you a spoiler. Follow the link on the uh, um, on the site. It's just too funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if if Andrew is asking if it's true that no other site has stones from more than ten miles away, I think Parker Pearson means that as far as we know, 
there aren't any. I really don't think that he would have been be, uh, being quite so bold as to say there aren't. Uh, the thing yeah. is that there are countless thousands of sites throughout Europe, and the research has simply not been done. So, to be honest, I think it was a silly thing to say. The funny thing was that t- when I heard that question, my immediately th- thought of the Rudston monolith in my mind um, that stone had been brought from more than 10 miles away but you've done a bit of digging and you found actually that it was from just 9.9 it's a whisker under 10 miles which which uh, is slightly annoying we would have liked to (laughs) yes and I, I would imagine that uh, that that's probably what Parker Pearson was referencing there, because it's it, as far as we know, it's the greatest distance in Britain, isn't it? But but you know, yeah, I mean, how many in, thousands in of sites? But you see, but, but the point is that there were, usually local stuff was used. They weren't mm. daft, you know. If they're mm. going to make a stone circle. You look around and see what's available, you know. And if, mm. if there's nothing available, you don't make a stone circle. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a question of who has the first idea, you know, about where the stone circle is going to be. Yes. Um, places like, you know, over in Brittany, they weren't shy of hauling very large lo- rocks over very large distances. And Indeed, that is true. But that's yeah. the story. Yeah. But, it's, but, but it's not an unreasonable opinion to hold. You, you would need to have a very good reason to move enormous lumps of rock any further than is absolutely necessary. That's the point. That is true too. Well, well, well enough said. I, I hope that went some way towards answering your question, Andrew. <laughs> Gosh, have we done that? I think Gosh. so. What else can we say? Without, without going anywhere, anywhere else with it. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's, it's not an unreasonable angle to take because – it's all a balance between what you can do and what your aspiration is. Mm-hmm. You know, if your aspiration is to plonk a 30-foot stone in the ground and the nearest 30-foot stone is, um, you know, so many miles, yards, whatever it is away, you find a, a way of doing it. Mm-hmm. If it's absolutely impossible, given the situation, then you don't. Um, if on the other hand you live somewhere where there is you know no stone and you want to you know do something a bit more complex you have to do a double take of you know you have to think again about uh, whether what the what the return on the investment's going to be yeah Yeah, yeah. the difference with the transportation of the blue stones i don't want to do a deep dive on this either really (laughs) The, the people that transported them were not from Wessex. Yes. They were from Wales. That is sort of where the thinking is going. Mm-hmm. So it's more like a movement of people who decided something was very important to them that needed transporting with them rather than people from the Stonehenge area going to Wales to get some blue stones and bring them back. Yes. Have we wrapped that up as neatly as we can? I, I think that's actually a, that's a, a very good summation. I do. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, let's hoping that um, won't cause us too much backlash. And uh, shall we? <laughs> shall, yeah. we shall we move on? But Moving we like on. backlash. Yes. We like well, we, you know we like common challenge. And, we do. Uh, we do. We do like being uh, uh, bottom of things. Yes. We we like um, we like people arguing with us um, in a nice way, of course, in a nice way. Yes. Head of the month. <laughs> it's that time again, and we do love our Stoneheads, don't we? Yes, we rather do. And it was a it was a tough call this month because there's quite a few of you have been sharing a lovely load of photographs from far and wide. But we finally made a decision. <laughs> this sounded like John and Greg from MasterChef. Didn't <laughs> So, anyway, tell the good folks, Rupert, who gets the applause and the esteemed title of Stonehead of the Month. Brace yourselves. It's Jennifer Harrison for her lovely shots from Cumbria and the Lakes, including some lovely shots of sunrise at Swinside. Yes, uh, obtained, uh, I do believe, in, in spite of elderly dogs. 
preventing you from getting uh, the the shot that the, the the money shot that you wanted at actual sunrise, but they're beautiful uh, nonetheless. Indeed, um, and just really impressive that anybody is up somewhere like that uh, at sunrise. Anyway, that's uh... it. Just goes to show, you know, time and time again that um, the key to uh, <laughs> you know lovely landscape photography is planning to be in the right place at the right time. Absolutely, so yeah. not something that happens uh, by accident by any means. Which reminds me, actually, talking of photography, we promised we'd do a photography special. Do you know what? I was only thinking about that yesterday. Yeah. We really ought to schedule that, actually. Yeah. So, Jennifer, yeah, uh, thank you for um, that. And, oh, and thank you for being um, a, a great supporter of our project. Of Indeed. Thank you, Jennifer. Yes. Yeah, it, it is deeply appreciated. And mm. all your contribution and comments and, and uh, keeping the conversation going. Yeah, much appreciated. <laughs> so, well done, Jennifer. Indeed. Uh, hats raised and glasses raised. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. We raise one for you all. Right. <laughs> so, all of which rolls us to the final moments of podcast number 12. So, uh, what is it that celebrates our year of whimsy, Michael? Have we got anything whimsical? Well, yes, I I think so. I thought this would be a perfect place for um to to talk about um what? Stonehenge yeah. and sailors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what sailors might have to do with Stonehenge? Oh dear. Yes. And I think yes, anybody that's listened to the uh, our latest podcast, our interview with uh, Dr. Bettina Schultz Paulsen of uh, Gothenburg University. Uh, the author of uh, a recent paper about the dissemination and spread of megalithic culture from uh, Brittany in the 4th and 5th millennia BC, mm. uh, will be familiar with the kickoff point for the whimsy I'm talking about. And uh, in the uh, uh, sort of media publicity after the release of her paper, one headline in particular really stuck out for me. <laughs> and I quote, Stonehenge mystery solved. Prehistoric sailors may have been responsible for legendary structure. <laughs> we, uh, we need to thank our friends at Fox News for that headline. I just hope that people just don't read the headlines. Uh, you know, the dear. sort of people that uh, that read Fox News don't just read the headlines, maybe, perhaps? I, don't I think know. they probably do. I think they uh, read the headlines and then tell everybody else. There's a kind of a, a, a serious thing behind this, you know, about representation of, of, uh, of history, science in general in the news and how it's made sexy you know, for general mm. consumption and how much a headline acts as uh, some kind of clickbait to get people that may otherwise not be that interested to, to look at something. And I suppose it's when you get past the headline, does the article itself do justice to the subject matter? And the answer is mm, not always so. No. Uh, you know, sometimes you find that that it's confusing because, in my opinion, often enough, the what's in the headline is often completely contradicted by what's in the content. Mm. No wonder people sometimes get left a bit confused and wonder why science is always changing its mind on stuff. Uh, it's it sort of it's it, it it helps to erode faith in in science and. Uh, uh, and, and what academics are, are trying to do sometimes. I, yeah. oh, oh, do I seem to be wearing the grouchy hat here? You do seem to be wearing the grouchy hat. I wasn't going to mention, but... <laughs> You're just going to let me dig a hole for myself. <laughs> well, no. I, do you know what? I, I have... Uh, you, you know me. I've always got space for a grouchy hat. So. <laughs> sometimes these things just need to be said. And, uh, and yeah, it's just misleading, isn't it? You know, it's... Uh, yeah. Stonehenge yeah. sailors, yes. Anyway, uh, to I mean to get the reason why that is uh, uh, a strange contortion, uh, a bit of a contorted headline to attract attention to, you know, what otherwise is a, I mean, it's a, it's years and years and research 
um, by Dr. Paulson, and uh, it's reduced to that headline. It, 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 it is whimsy. I think Bettina herself was quite amused. She was, it. yes. And to be fair, to be fair, um, she is in contact with Mike Parker Pearson. I think uh, she uh, she'd been working with him, and when when that headline appeared, she got in touch with him and said, "Oh, sorry about this. Sorry, I didn't have any control." And Parker Pearson reassured her, said, "Well." it's all part of, you know, it's all grist to the mill. It's all part of this thing of getting people interested in the, uh, in the subject matter and, and <laughs> what is actually going on. Um, so I, I think, you know, in some ways it's, it's sort of, I don't think he approves of it, but it's kind of in his playbook. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way of putting it, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, of how you deal with the interface between academic research and uh, uh, and public interest. Yeah, fascinating. We could, uh, you know, that's another conversation, isn't it? We could have. Indeed, indeed. Well, yes, that's a good whimsy, though, bordering on nonsense. So, did sailors build Stonehenge? Answer no. on a postcard, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of podcast number 12. Actually, it's this is quite a moment, is. isn't it? Yeah. Really? Because yeah, it, it really marks the end of a, of a full year of, of podcasting for yeah. us. Um, have to say, one thing that we intended to do, we haven't done so much of, and that is get other people in and, and bring you interviews. Mm. We've only done two so far, and the latest, of course, was just a, a few uh, days ago, in, in fact. But the promise is... There will be more on the way. Yes, there certainly will. Can we say more about that at all? At this uh, point? Well, waiting to hear back from uh, Kath Walker about uh, we want to interview her. She, she specialises in um, the axe trade, particularly uh, Scandinavian axe trade into Britain. And, um, yeah, we, we are having to be a little bit patient because <laughs> Kath has uh, – uh, in the space of a matter of weeks, has moved house and moved to a new job. Um, I think she's still at University of Bournemouth, but uh, but uh, but new job, new house. That's uh, a lot to take on board. So we're waiting to find when there's a good time for her to, um, you know, uh, to get on and arrange the uh, the interview. But that will be happening, and uh, we're very much looking forward to talking to her. She has a lot of wonderful things to say. Brilliant. Well, all that remains to be said then is uh, a deep thank you to our supporters, our Patreon supporters, Indeed, and. A reminder that uh, if you've enjoyed listening to Rupert and I, then uh, can we invite you to be part of the team, really, and become a Patreon supporter? It's uh, you can do so for less than a dollar a month if you go to patreon.com slash standing with stones uh look at what the uh, the rewards and perks that are available there choose one that suits you uh and um yeah like i say become uh, one of the team and help us do the podcast make more films make more interviews and all sorts of uh, other stuff yeah so. it really does make a big difference to us so uh, um, yes it's all very much appreciated so bless you folks bless you for being there thank you so much for listening hope you enjoyed that and uh, till the next time till the next one yeah bye bye yeah. folks take care see you soon bye bye